Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It's the Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how Iran and Russia are teaming up to evade Western sanctions. The tough sanctions the U.S. and its European allies imposed on Iran and Russia have succeeded in cutting off those two countries from much of the world's economy. They're largely banished from the Western banking system, and the flow of goods and services to and from the West has dried up. Of course, that's the whole point, to exert pressure on Iran to abandon its nuclear program, among other things, and on Russia to stop its war against Ukraine. But the sanctions also led to something else. Russia and Iran have now united to create a new 1,800-mile-long trade route that lets them defy some of the sanctions by moving products over land and water that's beyond the reach of Western law enforcement. Since they're shunned by the West, the two countries are now looking to the East. They're spending billions of dollars to ease the delivery of cargo to quickly growing economies in Asia. My Bloomberg colleagues Golnar Matavali in London and Jonathan Tyrone in Vienna have written a deeply reported story for Businessweek about this new alliance of convenience between Russia and Iran. And they're here to help us understand what to make of it. Golnar and Jonathan, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have written this fascinating story about how Iran and Russia have created this complicated new trade route to get around sanctions by the U.S. and the EU. Jonathan, maybe I'll start with you. Can you describe this trade route and what it's trying to circumvent? We began noticing a rise in trade between Iran and Russia, two of the most heavily sanctioned countries on Earth, and started looking at how that trade is being conducted. And obviously, there's a lot of moving boundaries right now because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including taking what's called the Sea of Azov, which is a extension of the Black Sea located in between the peninsula of Crimea, which Russia took over in 2014, the city of Maripol, which Russia took over in April-May 2022. And that creates new inland transport corridors for Russia to send goods to Iran and vice versa. Russia can ship goods down the Volga River, up the Don River, two rivers in southern Russia that lead into the Caspian Sea, which is shared with Iran. And so it's not just uh, the traditional Russian deliveries of grain and energy flowing down this southern corridor. Suddenly now it's also Iranian products that are flowing north because Iran also wants to escape sanctions. And so they're signing deals to ship turbines and plastics and of most concern for uh, Western policymakers, drones and other weapons that can go over the Caspian Sea into Russia directly without 
the possibility of being interdicted on international waters. Golnar, it used to be that a lot of these goods could just travel on open waters and goods were delivered in this way. Of course, they are that way all around the world. But the sanctions cut them off. And so instead, Iran and Russia have created a whole new overland trade route, which is not subject to inspection or enforcement by U.S. sanctions. Can you describe that route? They've had this idea for a long time, Russia and Iran. It's something that Iran has been really pushing for. It's always looking to circumvent sanctions and bypass sanctions and specifically US and EU penalties by using different pathways and routes and various different types of disguises to try and foil its trade with countries, particularly countries like China and other countries around the world. And so what they've wanted to do for a long time in Tehran is to link their ports in the Caspian Sea, which historically have always been very accessible to Russian markets, obviously, to the Persian Gulf. Because the Persian Gulf, as we know, is kind of like it's the choke point for global energy supplies. It's a hugely significant for oil trade. And it's of massive, huge importance for Iran's economy, making sure that the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz specifically is open and that Iran has ready access to that and that it can kind of bypass any perceived threats from the US, for instance, because the US military obviously has quite a strong presence also in the area. And Iran has difficult and tense relationships with its neighbours and has had for the past 10 years now. The Russian leader wants to bypass the blockade with the help of new partner countries. Russia's answer is the new north-south route from St. Petersburg, Moscow, Azerbaijan, Iran and to Mumbai. Russia hopes this new route could replace some of its lost trade with the West. The idea is that using a land corridor, so going from the northern coast of Iran on the Caspian Sea, cutting through the country using railway lines to link effectively these ports to the southern Persian Gulf Coast, where they have these major trade terminals like Bandar Abbas, which they're using now at the moment, and they've used Bandar Abbas to pilot this corridor so far and send some goods to Russia. And more recently, what they want to try and do is also use the port of Chabahar. Now, Chabahar is much closer to Iran's border with Pakistan. And so the importance and significance of that is that it comes east of the Strait of Hormuz. So if goods come from Bandar Abbas, they have to pass through the Strait of Hormuz. Using a port like Chabahar as an alternative to Bandar Abbas, again, bypasses that political risk as well. And it can get goods straight into the Indian Ocean and through to markets into Asia, like India, for instance, China. What's very unique about Chabahar is it's exempt from US sanctions. It's speculated that it was originally granted, A, because the U.S. wants to keep India on sides. And B, Chabahar was seen as a potentially strategic link to supply uh, U.S. troops in Afghanistan back when they were still there. And whether the sanctions exemption uh, remains or not is one of those open questions. And this is also quite an expensive venture. What has it cost to expand this trade route so far? The headline number is about $25 billion, more or less evenly split on either side. The Russians are 
spending billions, have committed billions to dredge and expand riverways, inland riverways. That's so bigger and bigger ships are able to pass some of these narrow waterways. Exactly. The capacity constraint is uh, the weather. Parts of it freeze up right now. Parts of it are too shallow. So there needs to be significant investment to increase the capacity to make it internationally competitive with longer routes that bigger ships comply, carrying bigger loads. Do the U.S. and the EU have any way of limiting or enforcing sanctions in this route? With the rail line, with the railroad, no. I don't see how they could possibly do that. The Persian Gulf, well, we've seen how quickly crises can erupt in that waterway. We had it under Trump. We had a, effectively a second tanker war. If they choose to then swoop into the Persian Gulf like a, a US vessel and wants to circumvent a ship which it suspects, for instance, of carrying maybe some some kind of goods from Russia that it's destined to go to China or India that's come via Iran that is sanctioned, then that potentially can happen if they do it in international waters inside the Persian Gulf. But doing that obviously really elevates the kind of risk scenario in the Persian Gulf. I'll continue my conversation with Golnar and Jonathan in just a bit. But to understand why Iran and Russia are going to such great lengths to avoid these Western sanctions, it's worth taking a moment to talk about the sanctions themselves and what it is that they do, or at least are supposed to do. So let's bring in someone who knows this subject cold. Dr. Maria Shagana joins me now from Berlin. She's a senior fellow who studies economic sanctions at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a British think tank. Maria, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Maria, the U.S. and the European Union have imposed a lot of sanctions on many individuals and companies and other entities. Exactly what do these sanctions cover? Indeed, there has been a truly a barrage of sanctions. We heard on a number of times that we're seeing unprecedented sanctions, not just in terms of their scope, but also in terms of how quickly they have been imposed. And the main blocks of the sanctions boils down to the export uh, sanctions that uh, nothing from the EU, US uh, comes into Russia from strategic sectors. Then we have dual-use technology, such as semiconductors, are no longer allowed to be exported to Russia. The recent development is the, the oil embargo, the price cap. On top of this, we have also unintended consequences, which came with a positive impact, is voluntarily that companies withdrew from Russia, and that has amplified the impact of sanctions. On Iran, uh, we have sanctions from 2012, uh, earlier as well. So it has been quite comprehensive as well. We have energy sector, again, dual use technologies, also strategic sectors, um, aviation technology. So the two countries, as I said, are naturally pivoting to each other because they are both isolated countries. More with Maria Shagana when we come back.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Maria, you've spelled out what the Western sanctions on Russia and Iran are supposed to do. They're supposed to isolate them and pressure them. How effective are sanctions at doing that? The GCPOA uh, deal, which is nuclear uh, deal, uh, which is uh, linked to, to the Iranian uh, sanctions regime, is usually cited as this positive example where sanctions pressure was positive. During the Obama administration, the Iranian elites were interested in signing that agreement and then lifting sanctions. Now, we have to say there are not many positive examples like that. That agreement, unfortunately, has failed uh, with the Trump administration withdrawing from unilaterally. And with Russia, we have sanctions from 2014, and we haven't had really a behavioral change. Now, with the recent sanctions from 2022, the objective is rather moderate. It's not a behavioral change, but actually to coerce Russia, to compel it to withdraw from Ukraine as much as possible, to erode its ability to fund the war. So you can judge that effectiveness as you want. If you have the maximalist objective that Russia has to withdraw from Ukraine, that is not happening at the moment. But if the objective is to erode in the long term, and to signal the the norms, to constrain Russia's ability, that part is unfolding. I suppose one measure of the success of sanctions is that it's squeezing Iran and Russia enough that they do want to embark on this very expensive arrangement to create an entirely new trade route to circumvent the sanctions. Indeed. So one side to look at the effectiveness of sanctions is to make it much more cumbersome, much more expensive for these countries to circumvent them. And that's what's happening both in Iran and in Russia. And we see that Iran and Russia are exchanging in goods that both can trade because they have achieved that some certain degree of self-sufficiency due to sanctions circumvention. And here the story on chips, I think, is, is exemplary that Russia is using Iranian drones. 
Russia attacked the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv with 13 Iranian-made drones. Ukraine says it managed to shoot them down, though several buildings were damaged. Iranian drones are 85% dependent on Western semiconductors. So we have that exchange of convenience, that partnership of convenience, but it has its limits. In order for this new trading route to work, it depends on the cooperation of a lot of other countries, including India, including other countries in Asia and in the Middle East, which puts them in an uncomfortable position. Do you anticipate that these countries, some of them will be willing to flout the United States and all of Europe in order to accommodate Russia and Iran? So when it comes to sanctions circumvention, we have to distinguish between these heavily sanctioned countries like Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, and also the Black Knights. This is the academic term that is used to describe third countries like China, India, who are haven't aligned with sanctions. They don't want to uh, violate sanctions outright, but they are willing to, to capitalize, to exploit the loopholes. So the access to these Black Knights to China, to Turkey, to India is key for the heavily sanctioned countries. Because as I said, by default, they're very much limited in what they can exchange, how they can conduct their financial transactions. So they're very much dependent on access and willingness of these third countries, these Black Knights, to engage with them. China is surprisingly not very much eager to violate Western sanctions outright again. But we see that uh, Turkey is more willing to maybe step in in some areas and to help Russia to re-export dual-use technology that is uh, no longer accessible. When it comes to India, also similar to China, they're again uh, using that cheap Russian commodities and particularly in the oil sector. So each country in this Black Knight category has its own motivation to engage with those countries. The U.S. and the EU are much more able to police shipping lanes when it goes into the traditional trade routes. Russia and Iran have created these alternate trade routes that are in sort of friendlier waters, but also rely on overland routes. What ability does the West have to control or limit the transport of goods over these new routes? I think it depends on the commodity. So when we talk about oil, the sanctions, the oil embargo only concerns seaborne oil shipments. So they don't talk about anything that goes through landline routes. So here, by default, it's not part of that design. When it comes to seaborne uh, shipments here, the asymmetrical dependence of Russia on Western insurance comes in because about 95% of insurance um, on for big oil tankers come from places like London. So it's relatively easy to implement because you have these nodes of dependence that you can exercise, you can leverage against Russia, and you can police it in coordination with those insurance companies who have been heavily engaged uh, in the design of that um, oil embargo and the price cap. Overall, we have to say that there are clearly limitations when it comes to enforcement. The U.S. is obviously a big elephant here. It has much more capacity, expertise and experience with that. U.S. is, is tracing that, that development. It has uh, beefed up its capacity, information sharing. They have also 
now created a sanctions envoy who would police all of the sanctions circumvention. So a lot has changed in the EU when it comes to sanctions enforcement, because that's really the main big game now for Brussels to enforce. But ultimately, we have to keep our expectations rather modest because it's impossible to track all sanctions circumvention. We're already seeing a big increase in the number of ships and the number of trains, shipments going along these new routes. Is there a danger that the sanctions could work a little too well, that Russia and Iran, other countries, create an entirely new trading arrangement that cuts out the West and therefore they no longer fear being cut out by the West? So these countries, is, again, they are dependent on third countries. So a large majority of these third countries has now been excluded with sanctions. So what they can do together is rather limited. They can't substitute that loss, that trade that has been lost with being decoupling from the West. So we're talking about some smaller percentage of what can be substituted, what can be alleviated, but it will never be 100 to 100%. It's their game of survival. It's not a game of thriving, right? They're not going to thrive on that. There won't be much economic growth in that, but they will survive. Their economy will be smaller. The economic pie will be much narrower. And that will be maybe fine. It will be aligned with the overall decoupling, with overall isolation of their economies. But that's not the thriving economies we're talking about. Dr. Maria Shagana, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much. We'll be right back after the break. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm back now with my colleagues Golnar Madhavali and Jonathan Tyrone. Golnar and Jonathan, we spoke earlier about some of the goods that are moving along this trade route. Things like microchips on the one hand and drones on the other. Obviously, two very different kinds of products, but products that couldn't move if this new trade route weren't in place. What are some of the other goods that are now being redirected along this new trade route? 
There's been a rash of deals signed in the last, uh, you know, six months. There's been uh, medical products, pharmaceuticals, uh, turbines, uh, industrial products. Another big one is food and agricultural products, wheat, barley, other grains, cooking oils. These these are all commodities that have obviously been heavily affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Iranian ships are some of the most kind of prolific taking up Russian wheat and grains in the Black Sea. And some of that is finding its way already over that trade route. So part of this is Iran getting goods into Russia and Russia getting goods into Iran. But the larger desire is also to move goods from both of these countries and sell to other nations. What are the countries buying? Because they need buyers for this. And each of the buyers for these goods risk incurring the wrath of the EU and the US on their own. So how is that working? Well, India just signed a deal to transport 12 million tons of grain over this route. And obviously, India has a strategic interest in Chabahar because they're one of the principal financiers. On India and Chabahar, I think, you know, it's worth also pointing out that that investment plan has lagged behind quite a lot. It's been delayed by a good few years. And that's partly because of, again, sanctions, And even though Jonathan mentioned this very important point that Chabahar port is exempt from US sanctions, India has still been very reluctant to kind of roll up its sleeves and really get started on that investment. And one of the reasons is because there are other sanctions that it can't violate. So there are financial sanctions that affect Iran's financial and banking sector, which means that it's very difficult for countries to transfer money. So for instance, if India wants to make this investment and it needs to kind of like needs to move money from India to Iran, it's very, very difficult to do that while sanctions are still in place. Those sanctions on Iran's access to banking facilities and financial transactions internationally are still in place. The government of the Islamic Republic has always wanted to kind of maintain a very pragmatic approach to who it trades with because it has no trade relationship with the United States. Its trade relationship with Europe and the EU specifically, you know, has been very healthy and strong at times. But obviously, in the past few years, it's been pretty bad. And now there's been a very deliberate, concerted effort by the hardline administration that's run by Ibrahim Raisi, who's this very ultra-conservative cleric, to, to kind of turn east In Iranian parlance, that means let's work with China and Russia. And countries in the region, like smaller countries and smaller markets in the region that they have easy geographic access to, where they can easily circumvent sanctions. This administration, led by Raisi, seems much more content to kind of focus on Moscow and even to a lesser extent Beijing. I mean, you know, Iran had this big 25-year, multi-billion dollar, long-term strategic investment plan with China, which was a big story at the time. We don't hear anything about that anymore. It's totally kind of just sort of disappeared off the radar. And Russia's kind of come to replace China. Having said that, obviously China, for anyone that produces oil, is a big deal. Like, you know, China's the one country that's always going to be there for you, that's always going to be hungry for crude oil. And another weird and kind of interesting aspect to this whole relationship is that 
since Russia was sanctioned by the US and the EU to the extent that it has been, it's kind of now entered this market that Iran sort of dominated and monopolized, which was a market for sanctioned oil. And the only customer in that market is China, officially. And now Iran finds itself in this position where it both wants to kind of totally kind of throw in its lot with Russia economically, but it's also aware of the fact that Russia is now moving into this market that it's kind of like had to itself. I spoke earlier with Dr. Maria Shagina, who said that despite all the efforts to build this alternative trade route to essentially replace trade with the West, it won't be enough, that they can subsist on it, that in a crisis it's enough to just get them through, but it's enough to, as she put it, survive but not thrive. When you look down the road in this agreement five years, 10 years from now, what do you see? Do you see this as something that becomes durable or something that is a relationship of convenience that dissolves when things change? Well, I mean, I guess you can never have enough redundancy in international trade. And so you want to build redundant trade routes, particularly if you're a sanctioned country. And the fact that you can ship then prohibited material like drones, like missiles, like explosives without being detected makes this particularly convenient in time of war. It's not going to replace the workhorse trade routes going through the Black Sea and down the Suez Canal with massive grain shipments to you know the Middle East. But in a pinch, when India wants that 12 million tons of grain and has uh, booked capacity across uh, Iranian railways, might come in handy. I'm kind of quite pessimistic, actually, in the long term. I think because Iran and Russia don't have a great track record when it comes to kind of long-term agreements. My sense and perception is this is much more of a relationship of convenience for Russia. And it's a relationship of absolute necessity for Iran. And I think that's where there's an essential imbalance. Iran doesn't have the kind of investment clout and capital needed to fund these massive infrastructure projects. Nowhere near as much as Russia still has. Politically, the Islamic Republic is under a huge amount of pressure right now at home. And the more it seems to come under that kind of pressure, the safer it seems to feel floating closer or just drifting much closer towards Moscow. Because Putin is in a similar situation. But my question is, how long is Putin going to be in that situation for? How much longer is Russia generally going to be in this situation, given the way that the war and their invasion of Ukraine is going? Golnar Matavali, Jonathan Tyrone, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much. You can read more from Golnar Matavali and Jonathan Tyrone at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Federica Romagnello. And associate producer is Zenab Siddiqui. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. 
We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.